Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Scientology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and my telling you that I think the success of projects should be measured, particularly taxpayer-funded projects, won't shock you. Measuring impact is not as easy as it might seem, though. Choosing the right measure can tell you not only how effective a program is, but also how to make it better. Choosing the right measurer can also change what is measured, and the analysis of those measures. We're joined this episode by Dr. Rutger Lukfeld from the NSCR and Leiden University in the Netherlands to discuss the Hack Right program, which is an interesting approach attempting to prevent young hackers from being irrevocably drawn into a life of cybercrime. We'll also get to talking about research into offenders and interdisciplinary research, which I found quite interesting. But let's jump in here as I ask Dr. Lukfeld about his recent decision to take a position at Leiden University. I'm not a traditional academic in, in the sense that I did my PhD and then got an assistant professorship and then an associate. I got my PhD and then I went on and worked for the NSCR, which is a research institute. So we do fundamental scientific research and all of the senior staff has a full professor appointment somewhere, but it's not an actual university in which we have to teach. So the career is slightly different because I love research. So that's why I started working at the Research Institute. And then, of course, if you progress, then people say, hey, why don't you join our university or why don't you become part of this or that? So we had quite some talks over the past years of universities where I could have a part-time position. And Leiden University, it's a great place because they're developing a cybercrime and cybersecurity bachelor, a university-wide bachelor from different faculties, which is great. So it's computer science, it's the law faculty, but it's also the governance faculty. So this is exactly what we need in the field. It's really multiple disciplines, teaching students about all different aspects of cyber. I think that's really interesting. So when I heard about their plans, I said, wow. If I can be part of this university, it will be great. So that's why I moved some of my time to the university, but I'm not a full-time professor there because I'm also still employed at the NSCR and I'm still a director at the Hague University of Applied Sciences. So I tried just combining all of these jobs into one and it kind of works. I mean, uh, you have to be at a lot of Christmas drinks and celebrations and stuff like that. But in the end, what we do is research, and I try to combine uh, all of the benefits from the different institutions there. So if there are interesting people working there, I try to connect them together and make one big research program. And of course, teaching, I don't know, it's it's easy because it's based on all of the work that we've done already. So it costs time because you literally have to teach, but also it's stuff that you already know. So I just, I really like it. I enjoy it. Again, I'm not a traditional academic, so I don't know if I will be full professor for the rest of my life, because honestly, that's not the goal in my life. I just want to do cool new research, and this really will help me to to do that. So the this interdisciplinary program, it, it brings together professors' coursework from computer science and criminology social sciences. That's the idea, to sort of equally weight and wrap them together? Yeah, it's it should be about one-third computer science, one-third criminology and law, and one-third governance. Uh, the thing at the moment is, of course, 
who is able to teach this computer science, they're there. It's, it's easy. I think when it comes to governance, we got a lot of cyber people in the governance section. So that's great. The criminology in Leiden and law, it's not as big as the other departments. So that's where my role, of course, is important. And we just hired a, a new assistant professor that also works part-time for me at The Hague. So we're trying to build that community there. But the beginning will be hard, right? Because we have to set up the program, you have to get used to each other. But if this works, you have a community of people from different disciplines teaching together, getting a bunch of students that are used to working with different disciplines. If it works, it will be great. If it doesn't work, at least we tried. That's how I see it. But I, I really think that we need something like this. And the students are free to do first the master and then say, I only want to do the computer science part or I only want to do the criminology part. That's okay. But at least they have a, a fundament, a background in the different disciplines. And I think that's very important for our future scholars and our future policymakers that they understand that life is not only social sciences or life is not only computer science, but that you know you actually have to talk with people from other disciplines. And it doesn't mean that you have to know everything. But at least you have to know that they're there, what their perspectives are, how they can be useful in whatever you do. And I think that's going to be awesome. And I really like being a part of that step in moving the field forward. Your research is all quite practically oriented. Do you think having worked so much with people trying to implement stuff in the field has sort of formed a base for what you're trying to do here or why it's so attractive to you to try and build these kinds of teaching programs? Yeah, I, I honestly don't know. I think I'm just a weird researcher. I also do the very theoretical stuff. I think my most cited paper is actually an analysis of routine activity theory and whether or not you can still apply that to cybercrime. That's more about theoretical advancement, right? But I really like to look for possibilities to do good quality scientific research that's really fundamental, uh, theory-driven, but then in the end also is going to help the police or society or whatever. I really like to try to combine it and it doesn't always work, but if it works, it's great because you're hitting the scientific checkboxes, but also you're helping, in our case, a lot of times the police, but also municipalities or other organizations to actually improve your policy or actually to help them with what kind of interventions work? And even the question by itself, does this intervention work coming from the police is very relevant for me because that makes sure that they now think not only in terms of we thought of this great new initiative, we're going to do it, but also does it work and how can we learn from this? So I really see a benefit there for society. And for me as a researcher, it gives me another opportunity to dive into the intervention, to collect data, and to publish about it. So it's a win-win situation as far as I'm concerned. It just makes your life a little bit harder because it's not only about publishing or teaching, it's also about making sure that you understand what are the needs from practice. And if you master the art of moving around in both worlds, I think that's really intriguing and very nice. And again, I also really hope that it works for the bachelor. Because if it works, if we get a little bit of understanding in each other's worlds, it's going to help out a lot. Because at the moment, we are thinking in pillars, the technical pillar, the organizational pillar, the human factor pillar. And it should be 
not all intertwined, but at least the connection should be there. Some of the research that you've been doing has been looking at police interventions with young offenders and trying to reduce the risk of them going into a life of crime or continuing to commit criminal acts. Tell me a little bit about the Hack Right program. It's a program that we got involved with, think about maybe three or four years ago, when it started as a very small pilot from the police. And the aim of the police, together with the district attorney in the Netherlands and the probation services and later even more companies, the idea behind it is, okay, so we are maybe dealing with a new type of offender. For the police, it was very clear. They said, we are dealing with a new type of offender. Hackers. Hackers that are maybe younger, maybe have different risk profiles, maybe have different needs, et cetera, et cetera. So for them, it was very clear. They were really convinced we're dealing with new offenders with new characteristics and therefore maybe different needs. And they expected to see a large influx of these offenders in the criminal justice system. And I said, well, we don't want them to get a criminal record because that makes your life harder, which is true. We know that. So we're trying to set up an alternative intervention for those youngsters that are really young. So below the age of 24, I believe our first offenders, and they have carried out a technical uh, attack. So it should not be related to fraud or uh, sextortion or whatever. It should really be technical. So maybe DDoSing his school or, you know, hacking into the system of the school to change the grades and stuff like that. So people that are highly skilled tech-wise have done something across the boundary. It's the law. You can't do this. But this is the last resort to make sure that they actually don't end up with a criminal record, but might be now convinced to say, hey, I'm going to go and pursue a career in cybersecurity and become an ethical hacker. So that's a thought behind the program from the perspective of the police. The first moment I heard about the program, I think they only did one or two cases as a pilot. I said, okay, this is interesting. I'm a cyber criminologist. I study pathways into cybercrime. I know there's a debate in, in cybercriminology about whether or not we're dealing with new type of offenders. We as scientists, I don't think that we have a final decision on this topic yet. I mean, we haven't done many empirical studies into this, but I'm really fascinated with this intervention. So I told them, if you want to continue with this, what I think is really necessary is that you have a critical friend or a critical scholar Let's call us a critical friend to actually look at this program, to see what are the plans, uh, how, how well did you actually think about the plans? What are the theories behind it? Are they indeed in line with what we criminologists think is important? And then about the process, how do you actually carry out the program? And do you actually stick to the plan? And all sorts of questions. And they, to my surprise, <laughs> said, yeah, we, we're actually interested in somebody independently doing this. So then I said, okay, we need some funding. So we applied for funding with the Police and Science Program, which is an independent funding body from the police that funds scientific research that benefits the police. So it was a great fit. And this is how we got involved. And again, the program is meant for these juvenile offenders that just screwed up, got caught, doing something very technical. So it's not about Russian hackers it's not about, you know, the fraudsters that, that make millions. It's really about those kids that are experimenting and that the police doesn't want to give the criminal record, but wants to help them in seeing, okay, 
we're going to teach you about the consequences. We're going to teach you about the law. We're going to teach you about alternative possibilities, what you can do with your, your tech skills, hoping that they will improve their lives and that they will never be seen by the police again. It's interesting that you said hope there. With large organizations, particularly governmental organizations, there's such inertia that in order to get a really innovative program running, you quite often need very strong leadership and you need to nearly build a, a cult of faith in this new program and everybody believes it's going to work and it's such a great idea and it can't fail. And with something like, hey, we have a rise in the number of young hackers and we also have a shortfall in the number of security professionals. Let's put these two things together and solve two problems at once. With such a great idea like that, how did it go at the end when you produced this report and you said, I'm going to be your critical friend here, but you're meeting with an organization that has such faith that this will be a success? How were you received at that point? Yeah, that's a very good question. Luckily for me, I've been doing research for the police and for other types of companies for a long time. So I kind of have the, the standpoint that I don't care what they think of me. I just have to do my work. And my work is doing independent research and my work is to show you this is, this is what we see. And then make some conclusions and maybe recommendations. But during the, the process of the research, I, I became very aware that everybody involved was so enthusiastic. And I can get it because also the cybersecurity community really embraced this uh, initiative thinking, yes, this is exactly what is needed. Uh, a lot of police officers embraced it and, and a lot of other, uh, like the probation services, they all said, yes, this is, this is so interesting. This is what we need. And of course, during the research, we identified a number of weaknesses and a number of things that could have been better, um, and we've written them down. I was surprised that the reaction was pretty positive on our report, because the report itself, it's a Dutch report. We've written now the first English paper based on that report. But the report, if you read it, it has some pretty critical points in there. But the thing is that the police really saw this as a pilot. And uh, even though they wanted to continue it, no matter what, you could definitely see that, you know, we're going to continue with it anyway. Everybody wants this. They really used the report and the findings to steer and to make adjustments. And even before the report was done, they really wanted us to say, well, can you already say something about, you know, where does it hurt the most? Where where can we make the best improvements? Because we, we really want to work on it. And I was, wow, this is interesting because a lot of times you expect and you get a kind of reaction saying, nah, we don't want you to look into this or nah, we don't agree with you. In this instance, they, they really said, well, at this stage of the project, then we can still make changes. So anything you can write, we're going to use in the benefit of the project to make it better. So this was, it was very nice. And I, I continue to work with the team, even though, again, it's a pretty uh, critical report. There are some things in there where I think, well, you should really have done something different. And the good news is, of course, they improved it already. Uh, and that also shows you that you can do these kind of studies with success because that's the reason we do it is not only to show what they're doing wrong, but especially from them to learn something from it and to improve it. So I'm pretty happy with this. And we're not there yet because, of course, we did not do an effect evaluation. So we don't know anything about the actual effect of the intervention. 
And I'm still not convinced that something like this just works because it's a good idea, because the idea is good. So I, I think it's really important to also have an effect evaluation later on to see, okay, these offenders that we treated versus other ones that didn't get the treatment, do we see any differences or not? I'm not sure yet, but again, I think it's very hard to actually uh, set up these kind of interventions that work because we know that there's just not much out there that actually works when it comes to preventing young people in committing crime. It's it's very hard. There are many factors at play. So I hope that we're going to get to the next step. If it's not us as a group doing it, anybody else can do it, but somebody should look at the effect of this intervention for the criminals themselves. Because in the end, that's why we're doing this, right? We're not doing it to have a cool project. We're doing this to make sure that people don't continue with their criminal activities. So for other countries that might be looking at setting up programs for young offenders, would there be any points that you would direct their attention to in terms of taking an awesome idea like this and implementing it? The main problem here is that the fundament is so weak on, on which they have to build a program. Because we know so little about a specific group of cyber-dependent criminals, we don't know much. There have been some studies, very limited, with very high limitations about the samples and, 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 and stuff like that. So we just don't know if this is a different group. And if you don't know whether or not it's a different group, how on earth can you build a new intervention? Because that's very random. So what we really need to do, if other countries want to do this too, and I believe that some of them want to do this, I would really want them to invest in the front end of this intervention, so to better understand the target group. We also written that in the Dutch report, saying, hey, we assigned this field because criminology hasn't done much research on this topic. We're slowly getting there. So it's not your fault that you didn't get the scientific evidence to see if this is a different group and how it's different and what they need. It's not your fault, but it is the case that there is not much out there. However, you do have a lot of information in your police files because you have arrested or interrogated a number of these people. So you can do some of the analysis yourself or you can ask others to do it. And if you combine the data of, for example, the Netherlands, uh, the UK, the US, other countries, then you might have a big data set that you can actually do something with. So if you want to continue with programs like this, I would really invest in the front end of these interventions and to make sure that you know the target group and that you know what is different and what is not different. Because if the basis is wrong, then what are you doing? And I think that's one of the main issues that I still have with the program. We just don't know, which doesn't mean that the idea isn't good, or which doesn't mean that you should not do it, because we also say... If you're going to continue doing this, then you need to figure out a way to set it up in such a way that you can continuously measure who the offenders are in the program to measure other stuff so you can learn from that and adapt the program. And in that way, you might even have the program. And in, in four years from now, let's be honest, we still have the problem of hackers and young offenders. In four years from now, you know much more. So if you continue set up the program in such a way that you can actually learn from the cases that went through the program, then you will continually be improving the program because this problem, it's nice if we solve it today, but it's also not a problem if we solve it in two years or in four years because this will be something that we have to deal with for the rest of our lives. 
I agree with you. I can say with some certainty that the amount of research that's done looking at offenders for cyber crimes is is a fraction of that which is done looking at public populations and more general deterrence oriented research. Why do you think that is? I think it's a combination of two things. On the one hand, most criminologists, also psychologists, sociologists, they stay on their very traditional topic that they've been doing research for decades. So people moving into these fields, it's very limited. I think we can identify most of the scholars involved, right? <laughs> we, should not, we should not be able to do that. There should be so many people working on this. Well, it's not. So that's the first problem. So that will be solved in 10 years or 20 years when more and more people do research into this. Because we now have a bachelor on cybercrime and cybersecurity and they do their PhD in this and continue to work on it. So that's the first problem. Not many people actually do research into cybercrime or cyber offenders. And of course, the second issue is it's hard to do research on actual offenders because they might be in your classroom, but you know, not all of them. Maybe if you talk about piracy, they're in your classroom, but actual people with good hacking skills, that's very limited. So it's a very difficult population to research. I am interviewing hackers myself. It goes so slowly. It took me a couple of years to interview 25 of them. It's just crazy. So it's very different compared to studies into bullying or studies into whatever kind of things you can do with the general public because they're there. Criminals tend to hide. It's more difficult. Law enforcement agencies not always want to provide the data they have. In the Netherlands, it's different. But in other countries, I know it's difficult. So that information is also not always accessible. The data we have on forums, for example, is very limited in a way that it doesn't say anything about risk factors, about personal characteristics, about all of the, the psychological things that you want to measure, we don't know. We can make fancy social networking graphs, but that doesn't say anything about the individual, right? It doesn't say anything about the characteristics that are interesting when you want to treat them. So the combination of two things makes sure that it, the field is very limited and therefore we need bigger programs. I think the last time in the podcast, I mentioned that I acquired funding for five years of research into pathways into cybercrime. And that's not going to solve all of the issues around pathways into cybercrime. But we need a five-year program with a couple of PhDs and a postdoc and myself to actually dive a little bit into the problem. We need more programs like that, like the, the big European or American programs where people have the time to collect good data, where people have the time to make sure that they interview or collect data in other ways of, of criminals, that they not only do the, the low-hanging fruit, but they also do yeah, the work that's needed to actually get a better understanding of those individuals. You mentioned the need for different disciplines being involved in this research. You talked about uh, psychology and computer science and, of course, criminology. It seems to me that it's a great need, but there's also an opposing force in that. Where on earth do you publish a psychology slash computer science slash criminology slash sociology paper? Is, is there a way out of this? Should, should we be pushing governments to commission the kinds of reports that, wouldn't, that can't get published in any of the, the journals that are worth getting published in? Yeah, maybe try publishing that one paper four times. So one time in a computer science journal, one time in the... Everybody would like that, right? Because you got four uh, publications uh, if, instead if, of one. If only it worked that way. 
Yeah, exactly. So uh, in practice, uh, what I see a lot is that I'm being uh, not forced, but let's say my employee likes it if I publishing criminology outlets, right? Because that's our main field of the organization that we work for. I just sent something to British Journal of Criminology, but we also have it in other more general, but like the Q1 kind of journals. And sometimes the editor just says, well, this topic is a little bit too niche for the readers of this journal. It's too niche. No, it's about digitization of crime. Everybody has to read this. But sometimes people think it's very technical, but it's not, right? It's a new type of offense. It's very relevant. So in practice, we have those issues. And what I try to do is find a balance between submitting pieces that you think, well, this should be able to be published in we just had two pieces in an experimental journal of criminology or something like that i don't know maybe i'm pronouncing the words in a different way but like a broad chronological journal that's really about experiments and it was about our experiments on both on, on google that i did with Asher moneva and also on, on instagram with luke bakers and they got published there to my surprise because i was thinking mm. I don't know. Maybe they will have many problems with it, but we took a chance and, and it worked. But we also, of course, go to the social sciences and computer review journals, uh, the computer and human behavior kind of journals. And the thing is that they have higher impact factors compared to most chronological journals. Many people read them, both from our discipline, but also from computer science and others. So I don't have any problems anymore with only publishing there. You know, for me, it's it's easy maybe because I got my PhD, I got my position, so I, I don't need to be publishing in certain uh, journals. I can just pick and decide. But I think it also makes sense to do more and more so the people in the other disciplines see, oh, but this is apparently where they are publishing and it gets cited a lot. So that means that it has an impact, right? One way of measuring an impact. I still struggle with it, to be fair, and we still have pieces that are being rejected based on being too niche or whatever, and I totally don't agree with it. But then we just go to the other journals, and they usually are keen on having the different disciplines in there. The problem with those journals is, like computers and human behavior, is it when it's too criminological, then they say, yeah. You know, it's, it's too criminological. So therefore, you do really have to make sure that it's from different disciplines. But yeah, it seems to be working. And uh, I don't know. I like publishing there more and more. And I, th I think it's a good way forward in not only thinking of publishing in our own specific domain or our own, you know, 2025 journals that we want to publish in, but really look, uh, look a bit broader. But I want to share one anecdote with you and then I'll stop about this. We just got a very big grant proposal about, I don't know, four or five million. And there are then six reviewers looking at the proposal. And it was a proposal of a computer scientist, governance people, law people, and criminological people. And one of the reviewers said, well, you know, they say they got some senior researchers in there, but we see in the profile of some of these senior researchers that they only produce conference papers. In social sciences, a conference is just a conference, right? You publish in peer-reviewed journals. But in computer science, you're going to conferences and there's a proceeding and that's it. And there are very high-ranked things that you can be published in. And those co-authors of the proposal were, but the reviewer just says, ah, I don't think that these guys are actually any good because I don't see many of these papers that I expect. And that's a big issue because if you have different disciplines in a consortium, 
and you have these old school reviewers that don't know anything about other fields, then yeah, it's crazy. It's it's so hard to actually defend against it. Let's hope that changes, but it's a struggle. That difference in tradition creates a lot of problems for groups trying to work together, just in terms of timing, because if you have half of your team aiming to get something published at a conference and the other half aiming to get it published in a journal, you've got one group who wants it done much more quickly than the other group. It just creates practical issues for a team that is trying to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. But I would always say you have to try, right? Because in some cases it does work. And when it works, it's great. But I think that's part of life as a scientist. You have to expect that it will be rejected. That's always what I think. Even when I send something for a journal, I know it fits here very well. You expect that you will have a crazy reviewer just rejecting it because I don't know why, because the person is crazy or just cranky the day or whatever. But that might be how I live my life. If you expect that, then it can only be better. And sometimes you think, oh, it was actually, it, you know, it wasn't so bad, this review. So I, I would not be discouraged by all of the stories about that it's difficult to publish in those different kind of outlets or different disciplines. I would just we have to do it and we have to try it. And of course, we'll fall on our face, but then cry about it and try it again. I think that brings it full circle. Every paper is also a pilot. No pilot is right the first time round. If you get something right the first time you're doing it, then you're not pushing yourself hard enough, I don't think. And expect to revise. I think that's a, that's a great message. Everybody revises. And let's hope for reviewers that give us comments that we can actually revise it and the article improves because, boy, oh boy, I get some reviews that I think, well, it's easy to, you know, to, to integrate, but it's not going to improve the paper. But sometimes it's it's so great. It's, it's so awesome. And I really wish that every time you get a review, you think, oh, yeah, this is actually going to improve the paper. Or at least you have to think about stuff that you haven't thought about. And that's a great process. So I agree with you. And let's all try to be that reviewer, right? Let's all try to be that reviewer that's not only negative or not only it's, it's trying to trust the paper, but tries to not teach you something, but tries to make sure that you think differently or that you think about stuff that you have taken for granted and stuff like that. I really like that. And, and let's all try to be that reviewer. That's a great place to stop. Let's all be reviewer number one with constructive feedback. Thanks very much for your time, and I look forward to seeing more of those English language reports on the HackRight program. Thanks for having me. Thank you to Dr. Ruka Lugfeld for the insights, and I'll certainly do my best to be reviewer number one as much as possible. In the meantime, though, this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. It's produced by me, but it is really only made possible by the kind guests who share their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimeology.com. Find me at cybercrimeology on X Twitter. Find me on LinkedIn or send me an email at cybercrimeology at gmail.com.